0: We're studying what we call the riches of divine grace, the things that God has done for you already at the very instant that you first trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The, the things that are true regarding your salvation. This is a body of truth that's very little understood. Many people are trying to figure out whether they are, in fact, saved, and they hope they are, and they're not certain if they are, and there's that consideration. Some don't even know what it means to be saved, and um, so a lot of what the scriptures teach, especially in the New Testament, about what God did for you the very moment you trusted in Christ is completely foreign and unknown. The best you could say generally is that evangelicals, of some, some evangelicals believe in the new birth, and they could talk about being born again, but that's really a bumper sticker. It's not as often an understanding And my desire for you is, first of all, understanding, but for a purpose, for the change of your perspective, any and every time you need it, to gratitude from whatever you have going on in here that isn't gratitude. I believe that if we truly knew who we were and the way God has presented it in the New Testament, it would have a radical impact on our attitudes, on how we deal with problems, on conflict, on how big a chunk these problems take out of our, of our experience in life. I believe if you became more and more aware of your so great salvation, you would be more and more equipped to rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And so in a way, I'm contending that joy is our goal. Joy, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace. In a way, I'm suggesting that we are in a drought spiritually in our culture where joy is unknown or irrelevant. And the children, and I mean those men, those grown men and 30-year-old bodies with little boys' souls, they couldn't tell you the first thing about joy, partly because they haven't been taught, partly because they don't want to be taught. They couldn't tell you the first thing about joy, but they would go for some fun. So my plan, my intention, my desire is that we would become more and more just enthralled with God's goodness toward us and live lives of overflowing gratitude the more we became aware of what he's already done for us in Jesus Christ. So we're calling this the riches of divine grace, and we're talking under this doctrine of the the places where the New Testament describes our new birth, or the fact that you've been made new in Christ. We've talked about the things that are true based on the the doctrine of the blood of Christ, where you are forever forgiven of sins, where you are forever um, satisfactory to God the Father because of the work of Christ, these doctrines of reconciliation and propitiation. We've talked about Uh, Many things associated with our new position in Christ through the baptism of the Holy Spirit that happened the very instant you trusted in Jesus as your Savior and has nothing to do with a compelling emotional feeling that you either tried for or someone coached you to really try try to go for in some sort of charismatic church camp. That's not what the baptism of the Spirit is, and it never has been. Even on the day of Pentecost, it was not that. It, was, it is that dry work of God in which he spiritually unites you to Jesus Christ and his person and work and his past, present, and future so that right now in Christ you are seated at the right hand of the Father because you're in union with Jesus Christ through this agency of identification through the Spirit of God or baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we portray with water at our baptism ritual. Well, we're talking now from that doctrine to what what it means that you're born again, the new birth. And we've said by our new birth, we are at least born again, sons of God, a new creation. And I'm talking about the fact that he's made you new in Christ and what that means and what it doesn't mean. And hopefully my expectation is that you won't be confused about, whether, well, I'm, I'm, I've fallen into personal sin. I wonder if I really do have the new creation. If I am made new in Christ, why do I struggle with old habits? Why are there these old tendencies? Well, the Bible addresses this. And it isn't that you're supposed to doubt the efficiency of Christ's work on the cross or the efficacy of it. It was sufficient, what Jesus did for you. You're not supposed to doubt the sufficiency of your faith. It's the faith of a little child mama says, come here. And little baby steps up, a little kid steps up and takes mama's hand. And mom says, we're going over here. The baby follows mama. And she says, we're going to take a left. And the baby doesn't know what left is, but mama just told her that's left. So now she knows, well, this is left because mom told her that's childlike faith. And that's what we're bringing to God, to Christ at the cross with the message of the gospel. It isn't the power of your faith, but the power of the grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ that you receive by childlike faith. We're not supposed to be doubting ourselves or I should say our salvation because of our failure. We're supposed to become aware of our responsibilities and our capabilities in our failure. You can do nothing that pleases God in the power of your flesh and you can disobey God pretty, pretty seriously. In fact, the Bible describes in 1 John the sin unto death, and that is for believers, a judgment of God, a discipline for Christians that he removes from the field of play because there will be no more growth. There will be no more sanctification. There will be no more profit to God and his glory in your choices. So eventually a believer in sufficient carnality and rebellion, God removes So we're talking about our new birth and we're asking and answering the question, since I'm created new in Christ, and if you've trusted in Christ, you are, and you take that as an article of faith because God said so, and I'll show you. Since I am created new in Christ, what should I do? What should I do? And here's the problem. You forget that you've been made new in Christ. The temptation of our flesh called to by the world of Satan's uh, uh, fallen angels in this, in this lying propaganda arrangement to get your attention off of God in this combination of this inner temptation, this external temptation, you find yourself under pressure and you succumb to temptation, you disobey God, you find yourself in personal sin and walking in darkness and you've forgotten who you are. You're the prince who snuck out of the, of the royal castle and then you fell and hit your head. And now you're wandering the streets with amnesia and the rags of a little pauper. And you've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten that you're the heir of the king. You've forgotten all that God has said about your position in Christ. And so this is the, the second message I'm gonna do on this, on how our lifestyle should go, how our behavior works because I'm created new in Christ. So we're talking about walking as a new creature in Christ. And I want you to understand Nothing I'm going to say has anything to do with people that don't have Christ as their Savior. Nothing I have to say about obedience, about the walk by the Spirit, about living out our so great salvation, about working out with fear and trembling in Philippians 2. Nothing I have to say about Christian lifestyle, Christian walk has anything to do with an unbeliever except that you as a believer through your Christian walk can provide an example of what it's like to live with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The way what I'm talking about addresses unbelievers is that you live out your faith in front of them and provide a context by that example to share Christ with them. But they have no chance. The unbeliever has no chance of walking in the lifestyle that we're going to see Paul describe in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4.24 Excuse me. In Ephesians 4:17, we're going to grab our translation that we worked through last time we were together, and we'll review it. In verse 17, this is my translation. If it compares favorably with your King James or your new King James or your new American standard, there's a reason why, and it's because the translators of these Bibles are seeking a word-for-word rendering from English into Greek. Therefore this, Paul says, therefore this I'm saying and testifying in the Lord. The word testify is martyreo, and it means to bear witness. And the witness that Paul bears in Ephesians 4.17 is that Jesus Christ issued these directives. I am testifying to you, says the apostle of Christ, the one sent by Christ, that this is what Jesus Christ personally wants for you to be about. That's why he says I'm testifying in the Lord. So this is Jesus' words through the Apostle Paul and the power of the Spirit to you on your spiritual life. This I'm saying and testifying in the Lord, that you no longer are to be walking just as also the Gentiles are walking. Had a good question. Paul's talking to a Gentile audience. What does this mean? This is the use of the word Gentile that means the entire world of unbelief. The way the world around you expresses itself. Now, in Paul's day, were there multiple cultures on the earth among the Gentiles? Did they have multiple expressions? Absolutely. You can't monolithically say Gentile culture. You had Greek culture. You had Scythian barbarian culture. You had all the different subcultures within all the different places within the Roman Empire. And then let's take a step out of the Roman Empire to the other Gentile nations throughout the world. What was going on in Egypt in Paul's day? There was some leftover remnant Egyptian culture with a lot of Greeks uh, mixed in because of the Alexander conquests. You, You can't say culture, Gentile culture. You have to say cultures. The way the entire world and all of its many wonderful, varied expressions, just like the foods of the world show you the variety of how people live in the world, they uniformly find a way to say no to the creator throughout their, all, all their cultures because the world, Satan's system of rebellion against God, has infected all the cultures. So you don't walk as they walk away from God according to the flesh, the sinful nature. You're no longer to be walking just as the Gentiles are walking. And I made a, 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 hopefully a strong enough argument last time we were together this is a command that Jesus is issuing that Paul is testifying to. You are no longer to be walking just as the Gentiles are walking, and this is how they walk. In the worthlessness of their minds, having been darkened in their understanding, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance which is in them because of their hardness of heart. If you look, beloved, at the things I've underlined describing the Gentile walk, you can see that we cannot be behaviorists we cannot start with someone's actions because that's not where the problem comes from. It's not in their hands. Where is the problem? It's not in their bedrooms, in their boudoir. It's not in their lifestyle, physical interactions primarily. Where does this problem of Gentile, pagan, rebellious life come from? It comes from the thinking part of man, the heart worthlessness of their minds darkened in their understanding, ignorance causing them to be alienated from the life of God because of the, the organ of understanding being scarred and shot through a scar tissue with a hardness of heart, insensitive to the things of God, a seared conscience, broken inner person. This is how we're born. This is who we are in the flesh. And so what we're saying is that by God's design, human beings without Christ are abnormal and in a process of worsening and worsening as the flesh, as that inner temptation, that inner draw of sin called your sinful nature rules. It breaks down the inner person and it's, the consequence is called hardness of heart. That word hardness is about, is, is, related to scarring, the the hardness of tissue when it receives scars and is no longer sensitive. So the, the inner person is becoming more and more defiled the more we run from God. And that's the nature of the human race without Christ. And what that should draw from you and me is a couple of things. We should have an awareness of what we're dealing with in this world. We should therefore be aware that I really don't need a lot of influence from it. I need the influence of Christ to shine forth through me to it. God can do some healing on those hardened hearts, but I don't need the, the scar tissue of the world informing me of how to live. I need to live in Christ toward the world. And so the direction of influence is very obvious. Moms and dads, you're amening me because you know that the pressures and challenges and temptations of this world in its various cultural expressions on your children seem impossible to overcome and overwhelming because somehow the world with its attractiveness grabs hold of their hearts and then they don't want the things of God. They want the things of this world. And it gets real subtle because, well, they want the things of God as expressed by the world. And they want the world, but they want God too. And, and there's, you can do both at the same time. And John says you can't, 1 John 2. Another thing it draws from us, if they've got broken machinery, if the hardness of heart is the characteristic of the, the, the Gentile world without Christ then we should have some compassion. Compassion on these people. We need God to do a work here. We need the Spirit of God to bring conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. We need God to work through the effective call of the gospel, which is powerful in the Spirit of God. For any time the gospel is being expressed, we need to have compassion and to expect that it would go contrary to the things of God in the world around us. Such ones, having become spiritually numb, my word spiritually is supplied here, but that's what hardness of heart is, is numbness, gave themselves over to ungodliness, which could also be translated irreverence, unto the pursuit of all uncleanness with, with greediness. Remember the illustration of the pig running into the mud puddle they're in a hurry. They're greedy. They're hungry for wickedness. And this is us without Christ. And we're not self-righteous here. We have the righteousness of God, not of ourselves. But this is the nature of the world we live in. That child that wanted to explain to me one year at camp how, how great was the culture of his ancestors and how the white man had, had, had abused his, his ancestral culture with the wicked white man and the righteous non-white man, whatever culture he was, and I won't say, or what, what kind of ancestry he had. Very racist argument. What's the answer? Well, all the cultures that you could say have people with light skin have been shot through with wickedness and numbness in their scar tissue of their souls and their hardness of heart. They've been completely corrupted by this, by this picture They've given themselves over to ungodliness under the pursuit of uncleanness with greed. They're after, they're hungry for that, for that mess that they're running toward. All those cultures that have given North, uh, Northern European uh, genetic stock and then the English and then they came here. But so have all the other cultures of all the other different varieties of people that put peppers on their food. Jalapeno or peppers on their food, Asian, whatever culture you're from, whatever continent you're from, whatever genetic stock you come from, you're part of this picture of the way the Gentiles walk. We are all from this. So the idea of cultural chauvinism, the Nazi project of we're going to have clean people from our clean ancestry, it's a satanic lie, not just because the Aryans were wicked, but because all people are wicked. We are strangers in a strange land, if you will. We are visitors on, a for, on foreign soil if we are in Christ. And we have been bought out of slavery to sin by the blood of Christ so that the culture that we come from with, its, with the way it's been corrupted by, by Satan and the world is now the target of our compassion with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it certainly is not the source of our identity This is what the world does. But see, this is how the Gentiles live. This is how they think. And it's all up here issuing forth in how they live their lives. But you did not learn. When I read this in English or Greek at first, why does he say you didn't learn Christ? Look at what we underlined. Worthlessness of their minds, darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from God because of the ignorance that's in them. Their hardness of heart. And then you have the way they live, but you did not learn Christ in this way. The Christian spiritual life is not lived by my hands without my heart. It's an inside-out solution to an inside-out problem. So we're not behaviorists. We're biblicists. We want God to use his word to renew our thinking so that we can live as he wants us to live. And so he takes them to their learning of Jesus. And you didn't learn Christ in this way if indeed you heard him, and in him you were taught since truth is in Jesus. And now God's agenda. Not only that you not walk as the Gentiles in verse 17, but that you set aside according to the former way of life the old man that you set aside the life that you lived in the power of your sinful nature. The old me, which is the fullness of me with just characterized by my sin nature, I'm supposed to set aside and embrace the new me, which is being renewed spiritually by the spirit of God in Christ. That's the old man. The old man doesn't mean your sin nature. It means the old expression of your sin nature in your life, that you set this aside. And that means habits, That means perspectives, that means desires, that means preferences. The things that are me, that are characterized from my sinful nature, I need to identify those things and say no. And I'm talking to you, self-righteous, gossipy people. I'm talking to you, licentious, at least I'm not self-righteous and gossipy like those people. I'm talking to every person in here who has a sinful nature and needs to be told to set aside the old. We need consistently and continuously to self-evaluate and make this decision. It's not a one-shot decision. It's a lifestyle. And that's why Christians are repentant. We're constantly changing our attention, changing our minds back to Jesus Christ. Now, some will say that sounds pretty Arminian because you're saying you have to be saved again and again. I'm not saying that. I'm reading what Paul is writing to Christians Saved people who have not been resurrected and therefore still struggled against their sinful nature. There's a war in our soul, according to Galatians chapter 5. But if I walk by the Spirit, I cannot fulfill the lust of the flesh. And that's a daily, moment-by-moment lifestyle issue. So we set aside, according to the former way of life, the old man, which is being corrupted according to the lust of deceit. But also, Paul testifies that Jesus wants you to be renewed, in the spirit of your mind. So there isn't just the things that I don't do or the thoughts that I don't think or the preferences that I no longer have. It's not negative. I'm adding something that's a very strong positive. I'm being renewed in the spirit of your mind, literally in Greek, the spirit of your mind. I want to draw a diagram of Pauline. Um, anthropology, how he sees the inner man, the immaterial, the material, how that all interfaces. But I'll just say the spirit of your mind seems to indicate that there is an immaterial component to the thinking part of you. And everybody, hopefully you know that neurologists can hook up um, electrodes and track sensors. They can track your brain. They can see where there is physical mental activity in your thinking. Did you know that? Brain waves are traceable things now. They can, they can hook you up to a, uh, what is it called, an um, a EEG, and they can see various tendencies in the way your brain is functioning. And if you put a book in front of you, the readout looks different than if you try to solve a math problem or if you do nothing. Your brain is traceable in the way you're thinking. But Paul says the spirit of your mind, he's going after that immaterial part of you that is interfaced with the physical brain, the the, the place where you're physically thinking. And this is as close as we can really get, little statements like this, to a biblical anthropology, that there's the physical plant, but there's the immaterial spiritual interface, and there's a connection there that is mysterious. And that's why psychology now, and secular psychology, has become the study of the brain because you can't see this immaterial part, but God can get at it with his word. And so he's looking for that renewal. You know, it's a very intensive mental process to read. Brain, physical brain, physical eyes. There's a lot of things. There are a lot of things going on when you read. But Paul is suggesting that when we read God's word with open hearts to the things of God and the power of his spirit, something is going on that's not simply physical. It's an immaterial inculcation. There's something happening in the spirit of your mind. And this is where we need renewal. We don't need re we need renewal. And this is the hard thing about media today. There are so many inputs and so many wells we can draw from that will reinforce the old ways of thinking or new ways of thinking that go along with the old man. I never got into this kind of wickedness. This is a new kind of wickedness I can can, uh, check out. And what we're being challenged to do here is to constantly go back to the well of God's word for that inner spiritual renewal. And it's a great challenge for us. But it's what Jesus wants for you, according to the Apostle Paul. In verse 24, and that you put on the new man. So do not walk like the Gentiles. Set aside the old man. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man, which with reference to God was created in righteousness and devoutness of the truth. All right. Verse 24 is the target thing that will help you understand the difference between what is inevitable and that for which you're responsible. You are not responsible to make sure you go to heaven. Sorry, if you're a believer in Christ, you don't have any options on that one. That one's settled. By God's grace. Because you're in the grip of of God the Father and God the Son. You were created in righteousness and devoutness of the truth. This is the new creation. The new man was created. Let me ask you a couple of observation questions. Has this already happened or is it in a process of happening as the translation here shows? What do, you, do you think it looks like it's an ongoing process or was it a completed action? Which was created in righteousness and devoutness of the truth? It looks like a completed action, doesn't it? Well, I can show you in the Greek why I've translated it that way. It doesn't say which is being created. It says it was created. It's a discrete event that has already taken place. So is the new creation settled? This is the riches of divine grace. God has done this. Did you know that unless he told you? I think not. I wouldn't know these things that God has told me unless he told me. And partly that might be my own personal experience, if you will. I was the worst sinner in town until I came to Christ at three years old. I have very little access to how it was before. A lot of you are this way. A lot of your children are this way. They're raised in the faith. So you don't have that stark contrast. I would some say, well, then you should wait till the kids, you know, do their ruin their lives and then they can come to Christ and see the difference. That wouldn't be a biblical norm on training your children in Deuteronomy 6. But here's the thing we shouldn't be pressing people into our experiences. What God does with you is not the scriptures. You're not a prophet. And God's experiences that He's giving you are not for you to impose on others, neither are they for me to impose on you. And that so often happens. This is how God did it with me, so uh, you must re- receive the same experience. But what I'm saying is that the new birth is settled. You are a new creature in Christ. It is called the new man. With reference to God, who did it? God created in righteousness and devoutness of the truth. The new man is settled. You are made new. So what is your responsibility according to verse 24? It seems pretty obvious to me. Jesus wants you to put on the new man and lay aside the old man. Now see, what it is not saying is that you need to believe in Christ as your Savior and receive the new birth so you can be a new creature in Christ. It isn't saying that. It's telling Christians to live The Christian life. It's telling believers not to walk in the old, but to put the old aside and the renewing of our of the spirit of our minds to put on the new man, which was created in righteousness and devoutness of the truth. So that which is true, the moment I trusted in Christ, I need to live out willfully in my personal experience and my day by day living in dependence on God according to His Word, with a consistent communication happening between you and God where he speaks to you through his word and you speak to him about it in prayer. And you have a real vibrant relationship because you're not just listening to him like he's some static source of information, but you're talking to him. God doesn't just have a mouth, he has ears. And you're in a relationship with him and you're actually talking to him and all of you need to pray more. All of us need to pray more than we do. We need to be more diligent about it. We need to be more consistent because it is our relationship with God. But this is true already. You were already born again. You do have the new man, but you have to choose to put it on. I think that that's a way of summarizing all of the commands of the New Testament to actually engage this spiritual life. You've heard me say it before before. Probably the greatest squandering of resources in world history is the body of Christ, which has every one of us has been given the Holy Spirit to abide in our hearts forever. But we don't live out the, the word of God. We don't walk in newness of life. We don't uh, conduct the mission in God's power. We don't grow to this spiritual maturity so God can use us in a mature way. Christians are still broken, and we get lazy. The minute somebody says, don't be spiritually lazy, we start getting out our our legalist torches and pitchforks and start coming after them as a legalist. Well, the Bible is not legalistic. And all the commands of the New Testament are commands for us to live out our so great salvation. So since we're new creatures in Christ, what should we do? You should no longer walk like the world around you. Are you? Stop it. Look at the world around you. Why do people walk according to their sinful nature? How is it coming out in their lives? Don't join them. Oh, but this is how my culture this is how we express. Don't be different. The world is ignorant of the things of God and it is given to full expression of the sin nature. We all need to go behind our house and our hearts the little house we've got up there, go back behind where a couple of a couple of bushes are concealing, a little pin we've got back there. We've got a little pin with our pet sins that we're okay with. And those don't bother me so much, but these other things these other people do, they really bother me. And our little pet sins, we kind of, we love them and we kind of pet them and but we don't let anybody else know about them, but there are little pet sins. We need to go back there, and we need to kill the pet sins. We need to get rid of whatever doesn't belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and tell the truth. Don't love your sin. Your sin is what sent Christ to the cross. Love your Savior. That's one or the other. As we saw in Paul's writing, Walking like the Gentiles is directly contradicting the truth that you have in Jesus. You can't do both. You can't live for me to live as Christ and to walk is to walk after the flesh the way the world breaks it to me in the various Gentile cultures. Jesus also said that you should set aside the old man. Don't walk like the Gentiles. That's a negative command. Now, this is a little more affirmative. Set it aside. Take what you were, what you would be without Christ and divest yourself of that expression of your sinfulness. That arrogance that creeps in and says, that's all about me. Well, it's not. It's all about Jesus. That sense of self-righteousness that says, well, at least I'm not, well, you are what you are and you need salvation like everyone else. So stop it. Embrace the grace of God instead of the legalism of our own self-righteousness. We set aside the old man. That you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's what's happening right now. In as much as we're in God's word, thinking through God's word, committing ourselves to God's word, loving God through his word, and desiring to live out God's word and the power of his spirit. That's what's happening right now. We're having our minds, the spirits of our minds renewed and saying, yeah, you know, I need to walk like it's describing. I need to tell the truth where sin creeps in. That you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This is the way we open the Bible, beloved. We don't open the Bible and say, what's my reading today? Okay, here we go. Ezra chapter 3. Now when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in the cities. The people were gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Amen. We open this word of God, this copy of the translation of God's word, which is what it is. We open it to wherever we are when we're studying it with open hearts to God and say, Father, let me know you. Help me know who you are. Let me be about what you're about. Let me understand what you're saying here so that I can live it. And ask him that and pray that prayer as you open the word of God and look for God to change you as he renews the spirit of your mind. That you put on the new man, which was, has already been created in righteousness and truth, to live it. As we close, I'd ask you really briefly to turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, where the Apostle Paul is concluding his correction of the wicked Galatians who have left the truth of the gospel of grace. And my target is verse 25, where the Apostle Paul says something that will change your life if you really listen to what he's saying. If we are living by the spirit, za'o, to live. Present indicative, or uh, present subjunctive. If we're living by the spirit, and we are. It's present indicative, sorry. Then by the spirit, let us stoikeo. Subjunctive. Let us also walk by the spirit. Stoikeo is not the word peripeteo, to walk that we're used to, to be in line with a thing, to be considered the standard for one's conduct, to hold to, a standard to follow or conform to. This is the idea of stoikeo. It's what you do in line as a soldier. You line up, dress right, dress, and you check the guy in front of you and beside you. you, make sure you're in line. But the thing you're lining up on is God's word or the power of the spirit of God. Paul says, if we are living by the spirit and it assumes that you are because you have this new life, then let us Also, stoicheo, by the Spirit, let us walk in line by the Spirit. So my translation, let us walk by the Spirit, says the New American Standard. Anyone have a different translation of that word, let us walk by the Spirit? What do you got, Jerry? Let us walk in the Spirit, Spirit, so we're arguing over the the, um, prepositional phrases. Let us walk, but it's a special word for walk, meaning the standard that we're approaching. See, it is not inevitable that if you have the life that you're going to live it, that you're going to experience the power of God through the Spirit of God in pleasing God unless you choose to. And that's why these Christians in Galatia have even left the gospel for a false gospel of works. If we are living by the Spirit, if you have the life, Let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us walk in dependence on God the Holy Spirit. Your spiritual life is a responsibility and a capability that God has given you. It is not an inevitability. In what Paul writes, he very clearly places responsibility on you. And what's the pushback? Guilt. You're giving us church guilt. It's Sunday morning Christian guilt. It's too hot outside for all that. You're over time anyway. No guilt at the end of the message, Pastor. If you're experiencing guilt, there's two kinds, and one of them is arrogance. The right kind of guilt says, I'm wrong, and I need to own that. The wrong kind of guilt says, my wrong is bigger than God's grace, and that's a sin. If you need to make corrections, what are you waiting for? Why waste your life? It's the greatest thing God has given to you. So don't let arrogance creep in and say, I'm being told wrong, I don't like that, so he's wrong for giving me Christian guilt. Say, God is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him and love him back because he's loved you with an infinite love. Don't forget, beloved Jesus Christ, not just God the Father, but Jesus Christ loved you too when he went to the cross, according to Galatians 2.20. Paul says, he, Jesus, loved me, and he gave himself for me don't walk around with Christian guilt. Let your conscience do its job and make the correction and then walk in the light. Our Father in heaven, we close with the words of life and ask on behalf of any who may be here in the hearing of my voice for you to work in their hearts with these words of life that Jesus came for them that died for their sins and rose from the dead to offer them eternal life. Father, our loved ones, our friends, our family, those who are visiting with us today who don't know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we pray for them with the compassion that we've described today. The compassion of Jesus Christ, who on the cross said, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. The compassion that says we're dealing with the world that has been numbed through a spiritual hardening of heart desperately needs your spirit to break through with your grace, with that convicting grace with that powerful message of the gospel that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. We pray for our loved ones, Father, our friends and our family, that they could hear that. That as John said, these miracles he wrote about have been written that that, that, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing we might have life in his name because he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Thank you for our salvation and our wonderful Savior. And Father, it's the desire of our hearts to know him better, to know you better through him, to walk in a manner that's pleasing to you, to live our lives that are so precious, to live our lives for you with the so great joy of our so great salvation. Don't let us squander it. We ask in Jesus' name, and we all said, amen.